0: I'd love to invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5 this morning, where we will continue. Um, I recall a time of watching a mother who was very exasperated. She had a young son who was throwing a tantrum. And it was very surprising of all the places to throw a tantrum. This isn't the place you'd expect it. It was at a theme park, the place where kids are supposed to be happy. Well, maybe you would expect it. Maybe you're not too shocked by that. But I recall watching this mom and her child, and she gave her child a warning. If you continue doing this, there's going to be a consequence. And I don't remember what the consequence was, but what I do remember is the child did not heed that warning and continued throwing the temper tantrum And the mom kept giving warnings until eventually she had to uh, take her threat to the next level. She uttered those famous words that all parents say at one time or another. This is your last warning. If you continue, there's going to be consequences. Well, after watching this, I kind of doubted it was the last warning. And I think the child doubted as well, because this boy continued his temper tantrum. And so the mom did what was next in her arsenal. She upped the consequence. You don't stop this behavior. We are going to leave this park. Well, I don't know where the family is from. I doubted they were from anywhere nearby that park. And I knew how much tickets were to get into the park, so I very much doubted that she would actually follow through on this threat. And again, the boy called her bluff and continued to have a tantrum. Well, eventually, she changed tactics completely and kind of threw a tantrum of her own and yelled at the boy. And you know, I guess the route of shame was the next option. And I can't believe you're acting like this. You're so embarrassing. Um, You're so selfish. Well, that didn't work either. So finally, mom had to use her final option, bribery. And, okay, we're going to buy you an ice cream. And the boy got what he wanted. Now, my point in saying that is not to draw attention to the mom. Perhaps we have been that mother at one point in our own life, that parent. But my point is to draw our attention to the child. Because the reality is that when it comes to relating to God, sometimes we can be very much like that child and very much doubt that God is someone who will keep his word. In fact, as we come to our passage today in Isaiah 5, we we come across a people who are very much like that child and they have uh, very much developed a cynicism towards God that, yeah, I don't think you'll actually follow through with your threats of discipline to us. And I think this passage in Isaiah 5 today is going to be a very helpful one for us. Now, before we get in, a little help in terms of finding our spot. You'll recall, if you've been here, the first five chapters of Isaiah form an introduction to this book. Everything that God is going to do among his people, he's laying the framework, the foundation for this is why I'm doing this. And and what we've seen so far is two themes, both a theme of judgment and a theme of hope. God is saying there is discipline needed, but even while speaking a message of discipline and judgment, God continues to promise future hope to his people. It's really astounding. We saw this last week too in Isaiah chapter 2 through 4. This section of judgment is bracketed in two bookends of a message of hope on both sides of it. And as we come to chapter 5 today, what we are left with is, a message of judgment um, We don't have a message of hope in today's section, but today's section doesn't sit apart from the rest, and so as we look at this section today, we must remember that God has spoken a message of future hope, and yet the reality is is now we turn to the present situation. And in the present situation, there are consequences, and just because there's a message of future hope, it doesn't remove the reality of present circumstances and you know, the, the, the issues that are going on here. Hope doesn't remove consequences. And I think as we turn to this passage, we will see areas that apply to ourselves, and maybe we'll see ourselves in some ways. Um, and so as we get ready to do that, I'd like to just take a moment, and let's pray, and let's ask God for his help as we open his word. So join me, and let's pray. God, I am thankful, thankful to be here this morning. I'm so thankful to have a church that we can gather and where we've been able to lift our voices and worship you with song. So thankful for a place where we can gather and open your word and, and, and take a time to hear from you. And God, I am thankful for each person who is here in this room this morning. I know there are so many other places we can be, and I'm thankful that each person who is here has chosen to be here today. Lord, I don't know where we all have come from in terms of life circumstances this week, where our hearts are at right now. I know that our minds tend to wander and think about things, the anxieties that surround us. Um, but God, I pray that this morning that you would help us to quiet those things and to focus on you. And God, as we listen to your word this morning, I would pray that you would help us to not just be hearers, but doers. That if there are areas in this passage where we see ourselves, um, where we see maybe we have some work to do in our hearts, that we would be eager to have you work in us. And so Lord, help us to be uh, humble and and ready to learn this morning. And, and we don't do this in our own strength. We need you. So God, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, work alongside your Word and work in us. So God, I pray this in the name of Jesus and through your Spirit. Amen. Amen. So as I said, we come to chapter 5, the final part of this introduction, and and we're going to see something kind of strange in this section. Isaiah now sings a song. So in this whole passage of introduction now, I don't know what this looked like originally. I don't know if Isaiah picked up a guitar and started singing a song for people. But he sings this love ballad. And as a love ballad, it has a very shocking twist at the end. It doesn't go where you would think a love ballad would go. And I'd like to read it for you. I'm going to focus this at first on just the first seven verses. So Isaiah 5 has kind of three major sections. This love ballad, then a section kind of looking at some issues among the people, and then a final conclusion. So let's just look at this first section. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded Wild grapes. And now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. So here is this song that Isaiah sings, and as I said, it goes to a place where we're not expecting. At first, we're introduced to this landowner and his vineyard, and this is a vineyard that has received extensive care and investment, and Isaiah's song reveals that this is the extent of God's blessing as well as his deep commitment to his people. This song is being used as an analogy of God's people. It's used to illustrate something true about His people. And as we look at this song, what we see here is this this significant contribution to time and attention. As I read about a vineyard and keeping vineyards, especially within uh, the the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, um, some scholars talk about what all this would involve, and it's quite a process. You'd spend about an entire season just removing rocks from the ground, getting the ground ready for your planting. Then to pick out your choice vines and to establish them takes time. And then it takes even more time to build walls around it and put all the infrastructure in place that's going to be needed. Uh, Scholars say that between your first uh, start of your work before you expect to get a grape uh, is about three years. So an extensive amount of time. So I want you to kind of get the sense of how much this, this landowner would be investing in this project only to be disappointed. Now, it's just not, not just time that's invested, but also there's great intentionality. When, when the song speaks of the, the landowner picking out choice vines, the word used here isn't just to say high-quality vines, but it's talking about a very specific variety that, that he wants to grow. I uh, give you an analogy of this this would be like me I I like to garden and I love growing tomatoes and the tomatoes that I really love are those little orange baby tomatoes that are really sweet. So if it's tomato season and I'm going to go to the store and buy some tomatoes, I'm going to go and I'm going to look specifically not just for high quality tomatoes but I'm going to look for Those little baby sweet orange tomatoes. That's what I'm looking for. And let's say I buy some tomato plants, and maybe they're mislabeled, and I grow them, and let's say they're just really high quality plants, but they give me beautiful beefsteak tomatoes. Am I a happy guy? No, I'm not a happy guy. I wanted the orange, baby, sweet tomatoes. I wanted something very specific. And that's, that's the idea being portrayed here. So there's great intentionality of he's not just picking choice vines, he's picking a specific thing because he has a specific idea of what kind of fruit he wants. And he's not getting the fruit that he wanted. Now, this is not just a matter of not getting the kind of fruit. In our ESV translation that we read from this morning, it uses the term wild grapes. Um, but I think it's. I, I want to paint a picture to get exactly how disappointing this is. The word used here is very interesting. This is the only place in the Bible this word referring to this wild grapes is used. And, and scholars don't actually know exactly what it means. But the word Isaiah used is derived from the exact same word used to talk about something that stinks. So in some ways we could translate this that instead of producing choice grapes, the vineyard is producing stink fruit. Whatever that is. Now, I don't know what that is. Is that some sort of very sour grape? Um, It might be. I think about, from just my own experience, I remember uh, planting an apple tree. And, you know, I was looking forward to the the crop. I don't know why, because I don't actually like apples. But I planted an apple tree. And the first crop of apples I got had some sort of, like, fungal infection that every apple I cut open had this, like, black fungus inside. And, and it was disgusting. It was upsetting. And, and it's the kind of thing that it's not even worth throwing in the compost pile because you don't want that disease getting in your compost. I mean, the only place where those apples can go is right in the garbage. And I wonder, as, as the, Isaiah is singing the song, if that's the idea. This isn't just the wrong kind of fruit, but this is something diseased and stinky and rotten, something you don't even want in your compost. Just throw it away. You see the, the, the disappointment that the owner of the vineyard is feeling here? I want you to get a sense of that this morning. So, so instead of producing choice grapes, the vineyard is producing stink fruit, and Isaiah now calls for a response from Jerusalem. He turns to the men of Jerusalem. He says, is there any fault in the farmer? Is there anything that the farmer, the owner of the vineyard, hasn't done? Now, he's speaking to people who are very familiar with vineyards. This is an agrarian culture. And so as they're listening to this, they're probably thinking, they they can sense the disappointment here. And so as the song continues and Isaiah says, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy this thing. I'm going to ruin it. Um, They probably are agreeing. I can imagine the people of Jerusalem eagerly agreeing with the owner's plan to destroy this vineyard. Nothing more the owner can do. You know, I, as I think about that, I wonder if you ever invested in something that was disappointing, and you get that feeling of i just want to I just want to burn this thing to the ground. Another gardening analogy you 'll think i 'm the worst gardener in the world after this morning. <laughs> But this year was the first year we tried to do a raised garden with vegetables. And um, usually I do pretty things like flowers and stuff like that, but we're getting into edible things now. And um, So we you know, cleared the land. There's a lot of prep that goes into this. You clear a spot. You build the raised bed. You, you go to the soil supplier, and you fill it with you know, good garden soil. You plant things, and your expectations are really high. Well, this year we did that. Only the good garden soil I thought I got wasn't good soil. It actually ended up being very hard soil. We planted carrots, and carrots are really funny things. Because when they're planted in hard soil, they don't grow down. They get stuck. But they keep growing fat, so you end up with these really stupid ball-shaped carrots that are useless. <laughs> and when I got these things, I was so disappointed. I'm like, I just want to throw this dirt away, burn it down, you know, that sort of thing. Now, okay, I know I can amend the soil and all that stuff. But there was disappointment. Now, get this, I didn't do that much work. I mean, I did a little bit of work, but this wasn't like a three-year investment of time and resources to plant a vineyard. So you can imagine that as the song is being sung, the people of Jerusalem are hearing this, and as they hear about this plan to just decimate this thing, they're probably cheering, yeah, do it. And then here's the twist. Because now in verse 7, the story reveals that Jerusalem is the vineyard. The people of Judah are the vineyard. And sometimes this is how God convicts us of our sin is he gives us an illustration where we can make the right judgment call. And then we find out, oh, that was about me. You might recall in King David's story, after he sinned with Bathsheba, uh, what did God do? He sent Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and tells him the story. He says, hey, David, God tell you about these two guys. There's this really rich landowner. He has all these sheep, all this livestock." And then there's this other guy, a really poor guy. All he had was one little baby lamb. He cared for that lamb. He, you know, It was basically a pet in his house. Well, this rich guy got a guest. And you know what he did? He didn't kill any of his animals. He stole that guy's lamb and he barbecued it. And, and David's outraged, right? You would be outraged. And David's like, this guy has to be judged. This is what has to happen. And what's Nathan do? He says, David, you're that guy. This is you. And what you did with Uriah's wife, and what you did to Uriah. The same thing is happening here. These people know what should be done with this vineyard, and they're saying, Yeah, let's tear this down. And then God says, By the way, it's you. You are the ones producing the stinky fruit. And so this is why God is bringing judgment Now, Isaiah, I have to point out one thing. At the end, verse 7, Isaiah has this wonderful play on words. It's very poetic, but it's lost in our English translation. As he talks about God saying that God looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He look for righteousness, but behold an outcry. These words are, are word plays. They sound very similar. Justice and bloodshed sound almost identical. Righteousness and outcry sound almost identical in Hebrew. And, and we lose that memorability, that word play. But I, I really appreciate Alec Matier um, gives a potential um, translation. Then he says, okay, I know that you can't keep the wordplay without doing violence to the meaning, but a lighthearted attempt to help us see how this works. And this is what I put on your, your study notes. One way you might translate this is what God intended to be lawful is awful. And what God intended where there was supposed to be the rightful are the frightful. You hear that? It's memorable. It's like the expectation and the reality are so far apart, even though, you know, they're kind of close, but they're far apart. The lawful are awful. The rightful are frightful. So as we move on here, I do want to point out one thing that we'll see again, but I don't want to move on without pointing this out because this is a passage of judgment. But I don't want you to miss the kindness of God here because remember, how does the song start off? It starts off with an owner of land caring for this vineyard, blessing it, pouring into it, giving it time and attention. And this is speaking about God's relationship to his people. Well, you have to remember that God doesn't start out with judgment. He starts out with blessing. And don't miss that, that these people had completely just cast off God's blessing. They took it for granted. So, so what do we see here? What is the stinking fruit? This next section of Isaiah 5, we're going to see this, this kind of unpack, like, what is the stinky fruit? What is so repulsive to God? And what we get here is seven uh, woes. Now, woe is a word used in funerals and, and death. It's associated with funerals and death. So when you hear this word woe, it's supposed to give us this idea of somebody grieving. And as God speaks these woes, he's grieving about his people. And there's seven of them, and I'm going to uh, kind of treat them in three different categories. Okay? The first two woes are greedy materialism and indulgent pleasure-seeking. And these two woes receive extensive commentary. In fact, they're the majority of this section. But what we see here is that the things that people seek will not bring the fulfillment that they hope. So the first one in verse 8, if you look at, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. Until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. What's going on here is, you know, God was the one who owned the land. He'd given it as an inheritance to the families. If you're an agrarian culture, land is very important because that's your livelihood. And what we see here is rather than people sharing the land and having their inheritance, people are being greedy and grabbing up more and more land to make these giant estates to the point where there's no more land available for anyone else. And you get this picture of this massive house sitting by itself in the middle of a huge field. Now, let's not be too quick just to say, oh, owning a big house is bad. Or having a house in the middle of a big field is bad. Otherwise, eastern Washington is in big trouble. Um, no, the problem is here is, is, is that there's a heart issue going on. God's not against owning things. In fact, God blessed Abraham with land and possession and wealth. But you see, in, in the law, God was the one who owned the land. And what we have here is a perversion of that where people are saying, I own the land. It's mine. Rather than saying, no, this belongs to God, it's it's mine. And in this hard attitude where they are expecting, hey, if I get all this accumulation, I'll be really taken care of. I'll have great wealth. Well, there's irony here because all this accumulation actually leads to a lack. Look at verse 9. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of a vineyard shall yield but one bath. Bath was a liquid measurement of about six to eight gallons. So ten acres of land is going to produce six to eight gallons of wine. It's a pitiful harvest. Moreover, a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Homer was a dry measurement of about 80 gallons. An ephah was a dry measurement of about eight gallons. So 80 gallons of seed is only going to give you eight gallons of grain. These are famine conditions. So the people in all their wisdom of accumulation are actually experiencing the opposite of what they planned. Your accumulation of wealth and possessions is not going to lead to your prospering. The next woe in, in verse 9, or verse 11, sorry, looks at another element that's going on. Not only are the people greedy, but they are pleasure-seeking. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. What we have here is a picture of people who no longer seek God, they seek pleasure. And again, the issue here is not pleasure. God is not against pleasure. God created pleasure. And God even makes promises to us that are very pleasurable, saying, "Hey, you one day you 're going to feast at this incredible wedding banquet. you know when we seek God, I believe that God does give us times of pleasure, but the issue is now we 've twisted this, and rather than seeking God, we take God off the throne when we seek pleasure, and that 's the issue and again, there 's irony here because these people who are seeking pleasure and seeking to throw things in their mouth and you know that it 's all about their appetite well." Rather than them consuming things, they are going to be consumed. Verse 14, therefore Sheol, when you see that word Sheol, think the grave. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. These people who are always thinking about what they put in their mouths instead are going to be thrown into the mouth of the grave. Now, these are the first two woes, but behind them are heart issues. In the next three woes, we really get into what is behind these heart issues. What's led these people to become so greedy? What's led these people to become pleasure-seeking? Well, what we see here in the next section is they have a cynicism towards God, they have a denial of moral absolutes, and they have an exaltation of self. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. The idea here is the falsehood the people have embraced has basically tied them to their sin the same way an ox would be tied to a, a cart. So everywhere they go, they're just going to drag their sin with them. They can't get away from their sin. And, and notice what's at the heart of this person is a cynicism about God. It's a worldview that excludes God. Verse 19, they're, they're talking and they say, let him be quick. Who's the him? Well, they're talking about God. Let God be quick. Let him speed his work that, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and, and let it come that we may know it. You see what they're saying here? This is a, this is a cynicism. This is like today, somebody who, who knows <clears throat> they're in the wrong and they're saying, you know what? If God doesn't like it, let him stop me. You know, in fact, let God strike me right now with a bolt of lightning. What, no no bolts of lightning? I, I guess God can't stop me. See the cynicism? This is like that boy at the amusement park saying, I don't believe your threats. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. This is how they're relating to God. And perhaps it's one of Israel's biggest condemnations because they are supposed to be people of all people who know who God is, who trust God, who've seen God work. Just as we saw in chapter 1, the ox knows its owner. You guys don't even know that I'm your God. Mm. I'm reminded in this of the story of Jonah because I think about the cynicism. Sometimes we look at cynicism and we think this is just a product of ignorance. Uh, A couple summers ago, we preached through the minor prophets and I had the privilege of getting Jonah as one of the sermons that I preached. And then Jonah, Jonah was a prophet of the Northern Kingdom, right? Isaiah is a prophet of the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom was always wicked. They always had bad kings. The Southern Kingdom kind of went back and forth. And Jonah, as a prophet to the northern kingdom, he was actually sent to Nineveh, a pagan Assyrian city, to preach a message of repentance to him. And one of the lessons in Jonah was, look at these pagan people. They repented when God sent a prophet to them. And if they repented, how much more should God's own people repent? Like, you would expect God's own people to repent better than those pagans. And so it became a lesson for the northern kingdom. You guys better repent, and guess what? They didn't. And God God judged him. He brought invaders. he, He exiled them. Now what's interesting, this is the reason I bring up the book of Jonah, is while Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, I very much believe that the book of Jonah was actually written to the southern kingdom. So while you have in the story that the northern kingdom was supposed to learn from Nineveh's example, you have a double lesson for the southern kingdom. They are supposed to learn not only from Nineveh's example of a positive repentance, but they were supposed to learn of the northern kingdom's example, a negative example what happens if you don't repent. See what's happening here is They have seen God work. They know what God says. This is not a cynicism born from ignorance. It's a cynicism born of arrogance. So where does this arrogance come from? Well, as we move on, we see that these people are not simply cynical. They, they're redefining morality. Verse 20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. When we talk about stinking fruit, can you see why this is so repulsive to God? The people who are given his law, who who are supposed to know what true right and wrong are, are perverting God's law and saying, hey, this stuff that God says is bad is actually really good. And so they're cynical, they're redefining morality. Where does this attitude develop from? Well, verse 21, we see, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. These are people who have elevated themselves above God. They've gone from being cynical about God to basically saying, I am God. I get to decide what's right and wrong. I'm really great. I don't need God. Now, as we talk about these, these are heart issues of the individual. But when you bring a lot of individuals together with the same heart issues, you have a society that's going the wrong direction. And that's what we find in the final two woes. These are society woes. We find a society marked by frivolous values and a society marked by social injustice. Verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. Here's a society who no longer values truly heroic people or honors truly valiant people. Rather, the heroes of the society are the great partiers. The people who are rewarded as valiant are those who pursue frivolous things. It makes you wonder what happens to a culture when they give their greatest honor to frivolous people. Hmm, that's interesting to think about. And where does this lead? Well, verse 23, these are people who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. They, They... create what we would call systemic (laughs) injustice. What's shocking here is we're not just talking about society in general. We're not just talking about a people group in general. These were God's very people that he gave his very law to. If anybody would show what a just culture, what a just society should look like, they should be the ones showing it. And instead they flipped everything on its head. So these are the woes. This is the the fruit that God sees as this is stinking fruit. And now I have to deal with this. And so we we come to the end here and we have two concluding statements. Really the first statement is a high level statement. Verse 24, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. As you see this, you rejected God to get pleasure and you're actually going to get destruction. That's what's happening here. Now the next conclusion then tells us how God's going to do this. So therefore, this is what's going to happen. Verse 25, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. Look at verse 26. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly speedily they come. Verse 29, their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. The second conclusion, again, we get a sense of irony. The nations were supposed to come to Jerusalem to worship God, but now instead we see the nations coming to Jerusalem to judge God's people. I appreciate the the irony here. Um, It's a reminder that when we live in our own wisdom... It's not as wise as we think it is. One other thing I I want to just mention here is I want us to remember that God's judgment is always paired with hope. We look at a passage like today and we we need to remember that. I love in the book of Isaiah, yes, Israel's sin is dealt with. Judah's sin is dealt with. But God has this message of hope. And what's really cool, and this is one of the reasons I'm really excited about us going into Isaiah, is in Isaiah, God then brings the nations. And these are wicked nations as well. And God uses them as his tool of judgment. But then part of Isaiah is dealing with their sin. And he has a message of judgment and discipline for the nations. But guess what? He also has a message of hope for the nations. So in Isaiah, we're going to see things like, hey, Egypt, here's your judgment. And guess what? I'm going to restore you and bring hope to you and rebuild you. Assyria, here's your judgment, but guess what? I'm going to restore you and bring hope to you. I love that because you see, here's the thing. God is not done with Israel, but guess what? He's not done with the other nations either. And God has this global plan of restoring people from every nation. It's incredible. And I'm looking forward to us seeing that in this book of Isaiah. But I want us to see this, that as we look at judgment, we must remember that God, in his judgment, he's not being arbitrary. He's not acting in a fit of rage. God is moving forward a plan that he has in place. And this is part of his plan. Now, how do we respond to God's word this morning? I began this morning by telling the story of this young boy throwing a temper tantrum. And if I were to give parenting advice, Um, especially to a young parent. One of the main pieces of advice I give to young parents is say, from day one, keep your word. This involves keeping your word in areas of discipline. If you say this is your last chance, make sure it's the last chance, your final warning. If you say this is the consequence, make sure that that is indeed the consequence. Not only is this good for developing discipline in a child and developing trust in a child, But it's good for developing discipline in yourself as well. Because guess what? It only takes one or two times of uttering a foolish consequence that you have to keep to, to train you to maybe be a little bit more wise in the consequences you threaten with. But keep your word. And of course, it's not just a matter of keeping your word in elements of discipline. Keep your word when it comes to promises and to good things. And when you say, I'm going to do this for you, keep your word. That's one of my big pieces of advice that I give. You know, the reality, when it comes to parenting, parenting revolves both rules and relationship. A parent who has all rules and no relationship is a very dangerous thing, and the parent who is all relationship and no rules is a dangerous thing. You have to keep rules and relationship together, and I love because, you know, we all fall short of this. We all make mistakes. If you're a parent, we, we make mistakes. I make mistakes. But you see, God is the ideal father and he never makes mistakes. He always keeps his word. And that starts with him keeping his word when it comes to good things, being a God of blessing, being a God of promise. He keeps his word to us. And and, and I hope you see that again, as we start out this passage in Isaiah, that Isaiah 5 starts with a, a, a landowner who's caring for his vineyard and giving blessing. And God gives blessing. Actually, that's one of the first ways God often t- tries to, to call us back to him is through blessing. So here's the thing. If you are in a place in life where maybe you're doing something where you know you ought not to do and God blesses you, do not make the mistake of thinking, oh, God must approve of me. God must not think too poorly of that thing that I'm doing. No, in fact, sometimes when God blesses you, it's it's his way of trying to say, Come back to me. I love you. And, and our response is supposed to be like, Oh, I've been such a fool to be running after this thing. I need to come back to God. I'll give you an example of this in Scripture. Romans 2, 4. Um, I didn't put that reference in your notes. You might want to write it down. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is an incredibly gracious and kind and loving father. He keeps his word. And and I want us to be very careful that, first of all, we don't become people that despise God's blessings, that we don't become cynical about God's promises. But, of course, God is also a God who disciplines, and we must be careful not to despise his warnings. We must not become like that little boy in the amusement park. Um, And and this is really important because it it causes us to remember again that discipline is, is given to correct and to restore us, not to destroy us, not to ruin us. See, the Bible says that if you are a child of God, you will not face God's wrath because Jesus has already done that. But Scripture does say if you're a child of God that he disciplines the children that he loves because it's a part of his love. He loves us too much to allow us to go our own way. And indeed, the fruit that he wants us to bear is too important to allow us just to walk around life producing stink fruit. So we have to remember this. Now, as we come to uh, the end here, it would be very easy to look at the woes in this chapter and just focus on externals. I think that's kind of our tendency as people. We tend to look at actions and think our biggest need is to fix an action, to fix an external thing, a behavior. And that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is a heart issue. And and, and that means that we always have to keep the gospel front and center. This is true for us uh, uh, who are parents, you know. Yes, I want my daughter to behave, but in my parenting of my daughter, my biggest goal is not that she would behave a certain way. It's that her heart would be tied to Jesus. Yeah, I care about her behavior. But at the end of the day, my my end goal is to not get a certain behavior out of her. It's to point her heart to Jesus. Now, as churches, sometimes we tend to focus on some of these external things. Some churches just focus on uh, things like materialism, and they, they really like to poke at materialism. Uh, some churches like to focus on issues of social justice. That's a very popular thing right now, is we're going to just make every sermon about social justice and inequality and things like that. Uh, some churches, maybe on the more conservative end of things, make everything about moral issues and uh, capitulating to culture and things like that. And the thing in all these is that if we focus on an external, at the expense to the gospel... This is a very dangerous thing to do. And really, we'll never find a solution apart from the gospel. Because these are heart issues. I'll I'll use an example here. I just mentioned social justice. And of course, um, like I said, there are a lot of churches talking about issues of social justice today. But where do issues of social justice, where do issues of inequality and and unjust uh, laws come from in our text? What did we see? Well, it comes from people who are materialistic and pleasure-seeking, who are cynical towards God, who decide they can decide what morality is, who have exalted themselves above God, who value frivolous things. And this is where injustice comes from. So let me ask you, can you find an external, can you fix some external system to fix injustice and inequality while having all those other things remain? No, you can't. And sometimes that's what we try to do. And and when you have all those other things as a reality, any solution you create will itself be unjust. You'll replace injustice towards someone with injustice towards someone else. Now, in saying that, I want us to be very careful that when you hear the word social justice, you don't think, oh, that's a bad thing. God cares about social justice. But social justice is not our biggest need. The gospel is. What's going on in our hearts is the biggest need. I want you to see this, that the gospel addresses every one of these woes. Here's what I mean. When I say the gospel, specifically, I mean that unique piece of good news that only Christians have, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus isn't dead. He rose again. Now, as I talk about the gospel, it also encapsulates everything else that leads up to that. Why did Jesus die? Why did he rise again? Well, it starts with a few things. First of all, there is a God and I'm not him. And God created everything and therefore he owns everything, not me and god established what's right and wrong he established moral order i don't determine what's right and wrong and and i don't live up to god's standard morally i fail i fall short of it i need a savior and and my hope and trust in jesus puts me into god's good standing and it gives me the hope of resurrection you know what that means I don't have to live just for this world. Finding pleasure and accumulating things in this world is not where my ultimate hope is at. Do you see how the gospel starts addressing every single one of these issues? Then the gospel, I say, I believe that God keeps his promises. We need to run back to the gospel. That is what we need. Now, final thing I'm going to say today is this. It's easy to see our culture reflected in this text. Do you see our culture reflected in this text? It's really easy to see our culture in this text. But guess what? The point of this text is not to look out there and say, wow, look how much our culture looks like this text. I'm not surprised. Our culture is a pagan culture. But who was this passage written to? Who was the song sung of? It was sung of God's people, right? Israel. Well, we've already said God has a future plan for Israel. He's not done with Israel. The church doesn't replace Israel. But we are part of God's people. And just as God cultivated Israel and expected them to produce a certain kind of fruit, so too we could also say God cultivated us, he blessed us, and he expects us to produce a certain kind of fruit. So we could apply this vineyard song to us in a sense And so then the purpose of this passage is not to look out there and say, how are they fitting into these woes? The purpose is to look at us and say, where do I see myself in these woes? And am I producing the kind of fruit that I should be producing, or am I kind of producing some stinky fruit? What kind of fruit does God want from us? Well, on a big scope thing, the church has been given the mission, as we have on the wall over here, to make disciples of all nations. Great commission. Great commission. Are we living for that mission? Are we people who express love and are are characterized by love the way that Jesus prayed in John 17? Do we love one another? Are we people pursuing God and pursuing holiness? What kind of fruit are we producing? Or am I so caught up in material accumulation that maybe I'm not investing in God's kingdom? Uh, Am I so focused on pleasure-seeking that I don't take time to love others and put myself second? Am I thinking I'm so important and wise that maybe I am succumbing to culture's view of morality and maybe I'm saying, you know what, maybe the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. You see, just because we are in the church doesn't mean we can't produce some stinky fruit. Now, here's what I want to say, and this is my final thing. But... If you do see some stink fruit in your own life, if you see areas where maybe your heart needs some adjustment, the answer to this today is not to try harder. See, God doesn't say, hey, clean yourself up and then come to me. No, God says, come to me. See, God is quick to welcome the humble who stumble. I bring our attention back to verse 18 of chapter 1. Even knowing everything God knew about the people of Judah, this is what he said to them. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Do you hear God's heart and his character in this? God simply calls us to come back to him. That's how we address areas that we need to address. The answer is preaching the gospel to yourself, surrendering yourself. And we see God's heart here. God gives us many stories to tell us about himself. Today we look at a story of a vineyard. He told another story of a prodigal son for whom the father was quick to wrap his arms around and embrace again. And maybe you need to run back to the father today. Boy, these are not things we do in our own strength. We don't bear fruit in our own strength. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I, I, I only produce fruit as far as I'm empowered by God and as far as I'm coming to him. So today, my, my hope is that we would take time to evaluate ourselves, not spend our time evaluating our world. That we would take time to humble ourselves and that today would be a day that we would run back to God. And I would like to pray for us in that. So I invite you to stand and and let me pray for us, because this too is an area where we need God's help and his, his strength. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this passage, and it's not a passage I would just choose automatically, a passage of judgment. But God, in this passage of judgment, there is great truth about who you are, There is a reminder of who we are and what we are capable of. And of course, we remember this as a passage within the context of your greater plan and your hope and that that you are a God of grace and mercy and kindness. Yes, you keep your word in your warnings, but you keep your word in your promises And God, as we stand here together this morning, I don't know where each person's heart is. I don't know perhaps where there are areas in our lives where maybe we're producing some stinky fruit. But God, I I pray that you would not only reveal those areas to us, but that you would cause us to be humble and quickly run to you and say, God, help me that we wouldn't try to do it in our own strength, that we wouldn't try to clean ourselves up, but that simply we would remember the gospel again, that we'd preach the gospel to ourselves and say it's only through Jesus, it's only through his strength. God, help me. I pray that you will give the strength that we need. And God, even as we go about our week, I pray that you would have your hand on each person here, that you would enable us to, to say the words we should say, to produce the fruit we should produce. And God, we know that you are with us. We don't have to pray for your presence, but I do pray that you would enlarge in our eyes, that we would see more and more that you are present. We would see how present you are and how great you are. And so God, I pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit, amen.